What brings a community together? Shared insights? Shared conversations? Welcome to Open Door by Cox Communities, tackling the big questions on the minds of smart community business leaders. Welcome back to Open Door by Cox Communities, where we're providing information for you to consider when making decisions for your multifamily communities. Discover the latest trends and technologies that are making some multifamily business owners stand out. I'm your host, Bess Friedman, CEO of Brown Harris Stevens. Today, we're discussing the best practices when it comes to managing through natural disasters and bouncing back quickly. And joining me for this very important conversation is Duncan Cannon, the Director of Building Technology at Cortland, a multifamily real estate investment development and management company. And Jim Shortle, the Assistant Vice President of Enterprise Business Continuity at Cox Communications. Duncan and Jim, welcome to the show. Hey there, welcome Duncan and Jim. Before we get into our very important topic of conversation, I just would like to take a moment for the both of you to tell the audience a little bit about your backgrounds and the work you do every day at Cortland and Cox. Duncan, perhaps you would like to go first. Oh, yes. Thank you for having me, Bess. My name is Duncan Cannon. I am the Director of Building Technology at Cortland. Cortland is a multifamily property owner, investor, developer, and manager. We have about 260 communities across the U.S., about 80,000 units and about 20 MSAs. And we actually do have some locations in the U.K. And so Director of Building Technology is a fancy word for saying I keep up with the technology at our communities that our IT team does not support. Traditional IT is computers, phones, printers, the business internet. What I do is really the all the other pieces that are supported by third parties, residential telecom, access control, smart locks, smart home, cameras, EV chargers, and amenity low voltage. To talk about my background, I went to the University of Virginia for architecture and spent about 10 years in architecture, switched over, started doing IT and networking support. And from there, I combined those two careers into what I do now. Very cool. And Jim, what about you? How long have you been in the field of crisis management and disaster recovery, and what does a typical day look like for you? Thank you, Bess. Jim Shorter with Cox Communications. I'm the Assistant Vice President for Enterprise Business Continuity. Preparing for this, I realized that I spent 35 of my 40 professional years doing disaster recovery and business continuity. It really has become a passion. I actually started doing IT disaster recovery, where my team and I had a network of national data centers and customers had contracts with us. And if anything bad happened to their data center, then they could come to our data center, put down their data, restore their applications, restore their network, and process payroll, order entry, or what have you. My team and I supported 18, 16 disasters over 18 months. And what I found over that period of time is we were ultimately able to recover everybody but often not as quickly as they wanted and often with a lot more pain than they wanted. And what it all came down to was the lack of 
detailed plans that were tested and exercised and maintained. So I actually formed my own consulting firm for about seven years, doing nothing but helping businesses to prepare better. I decided ultimately to fold up that shop when I took the job as manager of disaster recovery for Walmart stores. And from there, I moved on to director of crisis management business continuity for the Home Depot prior to coming to Cox 15 years ago now. Typical day at Cox, I would tell you, always starts with threat monitoring. So there is a BCP person on call every day whose responsibility is to make sure that nothing sneaks up on us. Most commonly, it's weather-related, but we're looking for anything natural or man-made to give our teams in the field adequate warning from a safety standpoint. And if we see something coming that could disrupt the business, to prepare and respond to it. And right now, we're actually, my team and I are going through the after-action review from the terrible, severe weather that moved through Tulsa on Father's Day. Can I ask you what you said, a BCP person? I'm a novice. That Sorry, maybe Duncan knows, but I just, I don't. What does that I, I mean? I would assume business continuity planning. Business continuity ah. planning, exactly. My apologies. No, don't apologize. Yeah. I bet the other listeners will appreciate that I asked that. I'm, I bet I'm not the only one. Very interesting. When it comes to natural disasters, geographic location dictates the types of situations that need to be prepared for. In the regions that you both work in, what are some of the biggest weather-related challenges you need to be prepared for? Jim, do you want to go first? I'd be happy to. So, of course, hurricanes tend to be the most destructive and tend to have the longest tail in recovery, and we certainly operate in hurricane zones. Beyond that, we're in the central region, Tornado Alley. We're also in Dixie Alley from a tornado standpoint. Severe winter weather is a major concern, ice storms, snow, cold, monsoons and haboobs in the Southwest. And then finally, I guess I would say out in California, the Santa Ana wind season tends to spawn the greatest wildfire activity. And now in the state of California, when fire conditions are very high, they actually proactively shut off power. They're called public safety power shutoffs where the power company will say, hey, in the next 24 hours, you may lose your power and we don't know when it's going to come back. A real mixed bag for us. I was actually going to follow up with a question to Jim. The They're turning the power off. Is that essentially because the dry weather and trees and vegetation uh, are contacting transformers and power lines and they're essentially trying to turn it off the power? Or is there some other reason that power is going off? Very much so. It is, number one, a safety concern, but possibly beyond that even, it's a potential liability concern for the power companies being the cause of a fire. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, from my end, being in the tech side of multifamily, it's storms are the biggest thing. It's anything that has lightning, high winds, anything that can really cause a power surge or any kind of downed communications, whether it's internet or whether it is cell signal. So many of the pieces of equipment on site need that internet connection or essentially power because you can still have your internet up, but if none of your equipment powers on, that internet's not helpful. Second to that would be freezing temperatures. And that, that doesn't necessarily affect our equipment, but it affects the entire community, essentially 
the freezing temperatures when you have your fire suppression systems, if it's a wet system and it freezes, or if you have just your water supply, it then causes flooding. As it, where it does relate to me is we are pushing to try to figure out how do we uh, preemptively figure out how to respond to freezing temperatures so that we can avoid a wet fire system freezing and then causing more of a catastrophic failure. And so it's temperature sensors, it's heaters that will kick on to to counteract the freezing temperatures. Yeah. So having a plan together before any natural disaster strikes is key to a safe and successful recovery. So what are some of the best practices for owners and property managers when it comes to developing an effective plan prior to experiencing a major weather event? I, I put into three buckets of communications, contacts, and resources. With communications, it is in any internal communications with within our team so that we know what's coming, what is the plan. They actually have that stepped plan of attack. And then external communications for contacting our providers, contacting the residents and keeping them up to date. And then really the contact piece is having that list of those vendors, all the emergency services, and who do we contact for support? A lot of the stuff, since it is third-party supported, it's we need to know who we can contact in an emergency. It may be that if it this happens on the weekend, it's who is actually going to answer the phone on the other side because we are that advocate for the resident. And then resources is it's making sure that we have resources in place, the materials to then replace downed equipment and uh, hopefully redundancy in circuit, power, everything so we can actually have backups. Um, with that, you know, as uh, being a multifamily uh, management group, when we have storms, uh, we typically keep staff on property just to be able to respond to a disaster. Jim, do you, I just, I want you to have the opportunity to share anything you think is any sort of ideas or planning or things that you think should be mentioned. My list is actually extremely similar to Duncan's. I have a little bit of a different order. First thing I wrote down is right organization, right people. We actually follow FEMA's incident command model and not going to get into a tremendous amount of detail, but during a large scale event, your organization may not be your business as usual organization. So you assign roles and responsibilities and most importantly, who is in charge? because it may be different in a disaster. We try to go three people deep on each of our key positions, primary, alternate, and tertiary. And where a position may not go three deep, we have to do cross-training. So that's item number one, right people, right org. Number two is have a written plan, no improvisation. It's gonna be a time of great stress and many of your key people may not be available. Having that written plan as a jumping off point is really important. And Duncan, the, the point about communications is absolutely critical. Cox's after action review from Hurricane Katrina was 216 items long. 83 of those were internal or external communication related. And we see that as communications change and grow and become more diverse, now you've got social media and the internet, those communication challenges morph over time. So you really got to stay on top of things. 
So important. Yes, when it comes to preparedness and safety during any emergency situation, having an educated resident population can be important. So Jim, what are some of the things property owners or managers should consider doing in order to make their residents better prepared for these sorts of situations? I guess I would tell you from my experience is there's going to be a portion of your population that will just never get the need for preparedness. But there are going to be a lot of people out there that understand it, but they need help. So guiding them to the right resources. So we have, for example, on our company internet site, we have an emergency preparedness page where we provide resources for our customers to help them get better prepared specifically around Cox services, but also in general. And you certainly don't need to recreate the wheel. So there's some fabulous sites out there like ready.gov, American Red Cross has some great sites where build an emergency preparedness page populated with things like evacuation routes out of your area, a list of shelters that typically open and make it available to your folks. So that, that's really where I would start. Yeah, when it comes to preparedness and recovery, not all developments have the same needs or considerations. Duncan, what are some of the unique challenges associated with different types of properties like single home versus multifamily apartment buildings? I think it's really expectations and ownership of, of what those next steps are. In single family uh, home ownership, you're at the mercy. You have that direct connection to the providers, to your utility companies. If your power goes out, your water's out, you are, are on the hook to sort that out with your provider. When it comes to multifamily, we are really that advocate. Yes, for power and water, those residents can still contact the utility providers, but most of the time they are looking to us to communicate, hey, we've contacted the utility provider. This is what's going on. This is when we expect everything to be restored. That especially pops in there when you have an internet outage because a lot of people see the internet as a more important utility than anything else these days because that's how they get their communication. This is where in your communication plan, it's what happens when I don't have power and I don't have internet in the leasing office? How do I get a message out to the residents? It's you can email them, but they all have to be then on their mobile device. That mobile device has to have a cellular connection. So if you've had a disaster happen and cell towers have gone down, uh, how are you actually then communicating that? Cell towers, powers out. Hopefully, if it's that large of a disaster, you've already had an evacuation. But even with that, if they have evacuated, they want to know, has the power come back on? When can I return? But with multifamily, it's you're averaging 300 units per community. That's, you know, 600 residents that are all really wondering, what are we going to do to be able to help them out? And what about commercial? Are there specific, are there special uh, difference? Like, how do you handle that differently, commercial versus, say, single family? Yeah, mo most of our stuff is multifamily. We do have mixed-use communities where we do have retail associated with that. And with that, it's you are still communicating with those retail providers as to 
power, data, water. But essentially, when you have a disaster in the air and you have a couple of retail spaces, a lot of the times those retail spaces will end up closing during that disaster. It really just depending on how, how severe it is. And I guess geography, as I said in the beginning, has a lot to do with it. And people are get used to, depending on where you live, certain things, storms ha- happening because they happen frequently. And so the residents, I would assume, are more prepared for things when that stuff happens, right? A- a- absolutely. And it's also really regionally, you're going to get our communities in Florida, they're used to lightning storms and hurricanes. They do understand how to get information on that. But if I have, you know, a hurricane uh, in an area that we're not really expecting, or if I have, like Jim was discussing, like you have a haboob that pops up, it's the unexpected disaster where in Georgia in this last winter, we had below freezing temperatures and really the buildings aren't built to handle that. If you go into Colorado, the way the buildings are built, they're expecting sub-freezing temperatures. The building and construction in Georgia isn't prepared to handle that. So you then start discovering, oh, they didn't, they didn't insulate this attic space and we have a wet fire suppression system. That's a problem. And so then it is moving ahead and saying, okay, we need to assess all of our buildings in this area and be ready for those sub-freezing temperatures next time. Yeah. So then I would guess that as they're building or they're being new properties, they will take all of that into consideration to be ultra prepared for what could be unexpected, as you said. And in the wake of any major event, having a well-trained on-site staff available to address or diagnose problems can make a big difference, I would assume. Duncan, how do you approach staff training and what do you expect of your on-site teams? More tech on-site requires much more engagement and understanding from the on-site associates. So uh, there is a attention to hiring and uh, resourcing more tech-forward associates for those sites. Really, the proper community manager, you can't just grab a community manager from a garden-style building that doesn't have a lot of tech and then put them in a high-rise building that has you know, an advanced access control system, camera system, EV charging, and expect them to be able to be successful. So as all the tech evolves, we are actually evolving with all of the associates that are there and kind of who really embraces that technology and then who doesn't. Because you can be successful either way. It's just you need to be matched to your community. But uh, with that, it is it is always a challenge as you move forward. Everybody loves progress and innovation, but everybody resists change. So, you know, oh, as, as people get older, it's I think it's even harder. But change is the one constant. But it's always I think it's a challenge in technology. It go, it's just everything is so fast and it's very hard to keep up with. That's for sure. Co- correct. That's that is the I would say the largest challenge it is constantly evolving internally. We try to put together strategies, make recommendations, but you really have to revisit that every quarter and say, OK, what's changed? How is the landscape and the ecosystem changing for each site and checking in and saying, hey, what is successful and really what needs to be sunset and is a legacy product that we need to move on from? Jim, I'd love for any of your just thoughts on the topic, anything you want to share. Yeah. So one thing Duncan mentioned early on is communication, getting with your residents, informing them, and some of the challenges with that. 
And it brought to mind uh, a couple things about cell service that may very well make your time here today paid for. So in the cellular network, there are a lot of towers out there that when commercial power fails, they stay up on batteries and they go to generator. There are many cell towers out there that do not have generators behind them that have a certain amount of battery time. And when that battery time is exhausted, unless they've rolled a portable generator out there, that tower is no longer broadcast. The other challenge that, of course, we have during any major event is cell towers becoming saturated. One of the things that many people don't know that can be a key to success, I've used it and it's true, particularly when cell towers are overtaxed. SMS text messages use less system resources than a voice call. So we are big believers in SMS text messaging, and I've got huge distribution lists that I don't count on an email getting through, but if I'm hitting them on SMS text, it's key. In, in our space, very similar to Duncan, we of course count on a lot of our people and we have a little bit more plug and play in our world. So we bring people, for example, in the Tulsa uh, event, we brought people in from many of the other markets. The technology is the same. It's a little bit easier. Key thing for us is our vendor support and making sure that in addition to our in-house staff, <clears throat> that we have an adequate number of vendors. And a couple of things that, that I found over the years and some of it's counterintuitive from a supply chain and a pricing standpoint, often you tend to concentrate your business with a company. And they may be affected by the same event that has impacted your community. So if that's the case, it may be a real challenge. So we try to do a couple things. We try to have some supplier diversity in all of our markets. We look for vendors who can get big with us through locations in other cities, maybe it's other states, but they can bring people in, they're under contract, they understand how we operate. But finally, knowing that even those folks may not be available, look to national contractors. For example, and Duncan, I think of the challenge of any generators on your property. If there is a large-scale emergency event, the diesel fueling companies, first and foremost, they're going to take care of the first responders. They're going to take care of hospital, police, fire, 911. Secondly, they're going to take care of critical infrastructure, comm providers, water, wastewater, et cetera, before they get to more residential-type applications. So we don't count on local fuel suppliers <clears throat> to take care of our needs necessarily we have a national contract. Granted, we may be driving fuel six, eight, 10 hours into a market, but sometimes that's what it takes. I agree with Jim. The vendor partnerships are absolutely critical. We expect more from our vendors as it relates to training, retraining staff, software updates, any feature changes. If choosing the vendor is absolutely critical because if they can't keep up with your staff who tend to rotate out, you'll have potentially two to three community managers or service managers at a site in a year. And so as they roll into, a, roll into a community, it's knowing what tech is there, 
how to actually engage with it, how to troubleshoot it. Because if they are not engaged, you quickly then get an ecosystem of technology that is substandard or really, I would call it damaged. And so a lot of the times when we take over a site through acquisition, my first step is getting a healthy ecosystem at the property because a lot of the times things have gone into disrepair. The other piece of that is really that predictive planning Jim, Jim was talking about is prior to an incident, having the contacts, the communications, the resources ready to go because we're not the only community that needs assistance, as Jim was saying. It's we are in line behind a lot of more critical pieces. The other piece is really diagnosing the issues that pop up is critical. A lot of the times when we have a power event at a site, it's knowing that power event happened because it could just be it's a normal storm and we had a lightning strike at a site. If that isn't brought up, when we will, will we then have communication that, hey, our smart home system is having communication problems, knowing that, oh yeah, we were struck by lightning uh, a week ago. And yeah, things started getting weird at that point. It's being able to have our guys be able to diagnose that, okay, hold on a second. We had got hit by lightning. We've had the elevator emergency systems have gone offline. Our, uh, our backend network that keeps all of our smart hubs aligned has gone offline. And it's knowing, okay, who do I call here? Do I call the telecom provider? Do I call the smart home provider? Who owns which piece of equipment and which piece of infrastructure so that we can get it to work as quickly as possible? Because a lot of the times our staff on site will just say it's broken. And so having that kind of administrative team to be able to step in and diagnose and ask the right sorts of questions to get to the answer faster is really what we try to do. I was actually just on a call earlier today with our, our in-house access control technicians working through what is the set of questions that we know a community manager or service manager can answer so that we know how to deploy the proper tools and techs at a site. As smart technology continues to advance and be deployed in our homes and places of work, Duncan, we're going back to you, Duncan. What are some of the biggest challenges smart technology like locks and thermostats create in the event of a power loss? Really, with a power loss, is making sure you're working through with your vendor that what happens when the power goes out. It's not if the power goes out, it's when the power goes out because those things are outside of our control. It's not if this piece of technology is going to break, it's when it breaks. Whatever it is, I don't care. I actually, I push our vendors fairly hard. They'll say, our lock is the best out there. You won't have to replace it for 10 years. Say, okay, that's fine. What happens when it breaks? Because I need to know who am I calling? How quickly can I get a replacement? And it is making sure that we have attic stock on site. If I have 300 smart locks going to all my units, I should have at least five spare locks in my storage room so that when a lock goes down, my site team can replace it and have that resident up and running. Locks are probably the most critical piece because that is someone's home. It's, it, it would be pretty frustrating for a single family homeowner to say, I can't get in my house right now because the smart lock doesn't work. There are different escalations of, okay, how much time is appropriate to troubleshoot before I take this into more escalated measures and drill the lock out? And so 
our teams need to know what are what's that path of escalation? What do I do first? Is it a software issue? Is it a battery issue? Is it a mechanical issue? Or do I just need to damage the lock, get through there and replace it? Similarly, we have some equipment that, of course, loses power. And we look to either provide some degree of battery backup in the equipment, or in many cases, it's a customer option. For example, your home router does probably have the ability to put a battery backup pack in it, but it's important for the customer to understand that. And that's one of the things, for example, it's on our emergency preparedness website is, hey, if you want your router to stay up, put some batteries in it. Uh, a lot of times the home security systems or home automation systems, the control panel will have some degree of battery backup. And then ultimately, of course, it will be exhausted, but it may allow a customer to uh, set things and then leave. Thank you. Let's just touch upon the electric vehicles because as they become more and more popular, say, what challenges do you think these cars will create for owners and for residents? The only thing that I can tell you is I visited my daughter in a multi-dwelling, a large multi-dwelling unit and not a single EV charging port to be had anywhere on the property to keep my hybrid going. But I get the challenge is hundreds and hundreds of units. How do you provide for charging for all that, Duncan? Oh, that is a, that is a great question. <laughs> That's the question. Yeah. How do you, Duncan? We are, we are, let me add, let me first address the, how do you provide it? And then talk about the disaster recovery piece. How do you provide it is really across our entire portfolio. We have communities built in the eighties, nineties, 2000s, 2010s. Most of them, the developers who have put those in have not planned for EVs. They weren't even thinking about EV infrastructure. And so the transformers, the, the meters, the electrical panels aren't built for the capacity needed. There are a lot of, a uh, lot of utility providers. I know we are working with Georgia power and they are currently trying to figure out what is going to be the demand upcoming on their grid. There are a lot of different opinions as to how it needs to be delivered. Going back to single family home ownership, that's where a lot of the EV adoption is happening first. Typically, that is a family that has a second car. So they have one internal combustion engine car and one EV. Or like in Jim's scenario, he has a hybrid. He's got those both crammed into one. He can do one or the other. And anybody who is then get, getting themselves an, an EV, they're going to typically upgrade their power situation so that they can connect to a 220 outlet and get a faster charge. How that then relates to multifamily is, yeah, I have 300 residents, but right now it's across the board, it's less than 1% of our residents have EVs. That's absolutely changing and absolutely increasing every day, which is fantastic. But it is making sure we have the capacity to respond. From Cortland's side, we are actually stepping through a strategy to assess every one of our communities to find what capacity we have for an immediate upgrade to charging, and then what is it going to take to work with the utility company to get a transformer upgraded, allocate the amount of power, and then essentially set up a plug farm somewhere on property where you, residents can get the 
highest speed charge that is possible and basically create a fueling station. Essentially, in multifamily, we don't have gas stations on our site. There, there's a lot of back and forth as to do we need to provide power for EVs. I think the entire country is trying to figure this out. Personally, I believe there's a little bit of a lag between kind of now and where we're going to get to. Where we're going to get to is I believe that the you're going to have more and more of the DC fast chargers at, at fueling stations, at grocery stores, where the intent is to bring someone to your commercial location so they will spend a half an hour, buy food, shop, fill up their car, and then come just like they would go to a normal fueling station. And really what we would be providing as the multifamily owner is that that second tier of, hey, you forgot to go run by, let's get you charged up. But it wouldn't be the day-to-day charging. When fuels are, EVs are expanding their capacity and expanding the, like, the amount of charge they can hold and distance they can go. A lot of new EV owners are treating their EVs just like they would treat their internal combustion engine, where they want to fuel up once a week. They want to run the entire tank out and then fill up, not plug in everywhere they get a chance. They're not running around with a cord like they're trying to plug their phone in. They're treating their car like it's a, like it's a gas power. Yeah, let me just add one thing. Uh, for those of you who are looking at uh, EV fleets, because this is something that, that we're looking at at Cox. So the very first challenge is providing what I call the business as usual charge. So the nature of the service into your property and at your property and the space to put the BAU chargers. But let's just say that BAU charging, commercial power is down and you're counting on that EV vehicle to go out and do some things, the easier answer is, we've got a generator on site. The hard answer is, oh, you mean that generator that's running at 80% because it supports the building and you want to put a bunch of EVs on there? It ain't big enough. You're going to need to provide separate backup power generation for your EVs. So it's a unique challenge. Uh, absolutely. And that, that's that's where I was going to take it next, Jim, is, is as you're thinking about a hurricane hits in Florida, hopefully everybody's gotten the, gotten the word and they have evacuated. But if they haven't and they have an EV, they would typically gas up wherever they can. But when you don't have power, it's how do you fill that car up? And where we have our high rise and mid rise in Florida, we're looking at all those need a generator for emergency power, it's do we give the option to be able to connect to that generator so that someone can then take their car and evacuate? If not, are they then stuck? As, as we talked about the concept of change and being constant and these are all moving pieces and people are learning and it takes time and eventually we will you know, have places and uh, where people can charge and do things easier, make it more accessible. But it's, it's you know, we're, not everybody has a, an EV, too. We're still in a place where a lot of people, I'm one of them, I, I don't have an electric car, but a lot of people are switching to hybrids. And it's just a different, takes time. It takes time. We'll get there. But I think this discussion has been so interesting and informative. And I just, before we close... And thank both of you. I would love for each of you to be able just to leave the listener with any sort of piece of advice or any 
Anything you want to share before we close out that you think is important? And why don't we go to you, Jim? We'll point it to you first. Sure. Before I provide you with the interesting factoid, maintaining network availability for our customers is critical to Cox. We have a very comprehensive program and the way we ensure that we're ready to support our customers is we use a pre-season planning approach for everything that's seasonal. So by May 15th, we've bought all of our supplies, we've trained our people, we're ready for hurricane season. By September 1st, we got winter weather pre-season prep done. Big believer in pre-season preparation, we have pre-event preparation checklists to make sure we're maximally ready and then if something happens, we have a recovery checklist. FEMA did a number of studies coming out of the 2005 hurricane season. That was Katrina, Rita, and Wilma. And this has been replicated since. And here's your factoid. For every $1 that a company spends in mitigation or preparation, you save $4 in response and recovery. There, in addition to taking care of your people and your customers, is return on investment. And it's a pretty compelling case, I think. Yeah, and I'll say I don't have a an interesting factoid like Jim does, but I'm definitely going to use that as I talk to my executives. Is A lot of it is you're essentially getting an insurance plan for to try to avoid that extra spend. A lot of the times you don't get to that point you know, with any company of, hey, we need to move forward with implementing this safeguard, it's going to cost money, but the cost avoided is much greater. And it's really quantifying that cost avoided. But really, I would go back to what I said before about it's not if it breaks, it's when it breaks on technology. And a lot of the times there is a lot of weight on on what everyone is used to. And then when it is no longer there or when something has broken, it's what do I do now? And knowing what to do. Well, preparedness. You guys are excellent and have been, I think, informative. And I appreciate you taking the time today and have a great rest of the day. Great. Thanks for hosting us, Bess. And Duncan, good to see you again. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Bess. Thanks again to Duncan and Jim for being on the show today and discussing the best practices when it comes to managing through natural disasters and bouncing back quickly. You can learn more about the work that Cortland is doing on their website, Cortland.com. And don't forget, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe so you never miss another episode. Thanks again for listening. I'm Bess Friedman, and this has been Open Door, brought to you by Cox Communities. Cox Communities.